Welcome to On Leading. I am Shauna Steffen talking with Van Jones today. Van Jones is a grounding and inspiring presence, deeply committed to restoring balance in the world. Whether advocating for our country's founding vision of justice for all as a human rights lawyer, or invoking civility as a CNN political contributor, Van is a visionary voice for the highest good. Van literally wrote the book on the green collar economy and then worked at the White House as special advisor for green jobs, enterprise, and innovation. He offers great insight on how to live and lead in soulful and solution-oriented ways. In this interview, I talk with Van about restorative leadership in action and how he bridges divides to bring out the best of our diverse humanity, which he does so brilliantly in front of millions of viewers and on the ground through his organization, Dream Corps. You have a rare biography mm-hmm. that enables you to create some pretty profound openings. So with being Southern, Christian, and of African and Native descent, and being the son of a military cop and teacher, and a Yale Law School graduate, like mm-hmm. that is a rare yeah. biography. Yeah. Thank goodness for affirmative action. You know, there are 10,000 kids applied to go to Yale Law School the year that I went. They let in 120 of us. Uh, I think uh, 16 or 17 African Americans. And, um, you know, I had great test scores and I had great GPA and I had already been an independent publisher. And But who cares? I mean, 10,000 kids that also had a lot to show for um, their short time in the world. But at that time, and uh, thankfully so, Yale said, we mm-hmm. want Southern kids here, we want public school kids mm-hmm. here, we want black kids here. And I hit all three boxes and suddenly I wind up at the number one law school in the world and mm-hmm. brought all of that odd background. I'd never heard of Brown. I thought Oxford was a law school in Boston. Mm-hmm. I was not a part of any of the kind of Eastern elite world. And, um, you know, I, I know that some of the smartest people I ever met were working at the local newspaper in my hometown. And after I left Yale, some of the smartest people I'd ever met were working at the local newspaper in my hometown. And it's just a question of access and opportunity. So, um, so yeah, but I, I'm an interesting little, little gumbo. You are using that biography to create really transformative openings. And so I wonder, how do you do that? How do you bridge the divides mm-hmm. and create the openings that are needed at this time? Well, I think the, the most important thing is um, you can't work with people who you don't uh, love and respect. Mm. And um, so we need to learn how to love and respect a lot more people. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, you can't lead a country that you don't love. Mm. Um, you can't lead anybody you don't love. I've just worked really hard to try to really appreciate I mean, someone like a Newt, Newt Gingrich, um, and I disagree with him on, on 99% of policy stuff, but what an achievement, you know, to be an Army brat kid. I mean, his last name isn't Rockefeller, you know, um, and he is a household name on at least two, if not three, continents. When I was coming up, the idea that, that the Republicans would ever 
have a majority in the House of, of Representatives. I mean, that was just a Democratic bastion for decade after decade after decade. You know, he changed that. He he's a part of history. Uh, really, in some ways, the Clinton Gore administration was as equally the Clinton Gore Gingrich administration mm-hmm. as anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the '90s were actually turned out okay. So, you know, I just uh, I learn from him every time I talk to him because he's just one of the smartest people in the world. And it's just an honor to get a chance to, to be around someone whose brain works that way. And where we can agree, mm-hmm. which is on the need for criminal justice reform, we partner. Mm-hmm. Where we don't agree, like he's for you know, Donald Trump, we just don't partner. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, how can you possibly work with him? He's for Donald Trump. I said, listen, your, your 90% enemy can be your 10% friend. Mm-hmm. You know, let's focus on where there's agreement. Mm-hmm. And because I'm such a strong progressive and he's such a strong conservative, when we come together, it's news just because we're together and... I can actually uh, be useful to him, and he can be useful to me. The key is to have a solution in mind that is big enough that you can't do it by yourself. If you're trying, if you're if you're trying to get something done, you can do by yourself. Like I just want to protest all the evil in the world. Well, you don't need to grow for that. You just need a really good, you know, poster board magic marker, and you can protest all day. If you're trying to fix something, you need a bigger team, if you're trying to create something new, an even bigger team, I think part of the problem is that we don't put in front of ourselves challenges that are so big that we are humbled by them and have to reach out for help from very, very strange places. Thank you. So I'm wondering, how do you reconcile that understanding of interconnectedness and basic goodness mm-hmm. with the fierce urgency of now? Yeah. I mean, I probably don't do a, a good job with that. I mean, I think like most people, sometimes I'm really patient, sometimes I'm not. You know, sometimes I'm really good at um, being measured, and sometimes I'm not. So I think mainly what my life is, like I try to do stuff, it usually doesn't work, and then I come back and I try to figure out what went wrong. Mm. And my greatest joy is when I figured out what went wrong is that I screwed it up. That's a huge relief. Because sometimes you think, well, it went wrong because that person's an idiot, or it went wrong because of racism, or it went wrong because of you know some huge flaw in humanity, or just some massive you know field of injustices oh no actually I just screwed it up <laughs> like I wasn't as prepared as I could have been or I wasn't as spiritually grounded in that moment as I needed to be or something like and then I'm happy because like if it's my fault I can fix that I love that <laughs> and so um, I, I always say listen even if it's 99% the other person's fault that 1% that's your fault if you can find that sometimes that 1% can flip the 99 so, but I mean, I'm not, listen, there are some people in this work who are, you know, almost like saints, you know, Brian Stevenson is like practically a saint. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, uh, I'm closer to, um, you know, a street fighter in terms of, you know, just, you know, the temper of my will, you know, and I have to pull back from that in order to um, show wisdom, show restraint, think it through do a good job, Um, and I have a fundamental faith that um, 
the answer, the solution is always surprising, mm. right? If, if you think you can just put together your, your standard anti-sexist coalition and win, you're, no, or your anti-racist coalition or your, all your usual suspects, you've already gotten all you're going to get out of that coalition. If you're going to do something fantastic and amazing and worthy, there's a missing Lego piece in that structure that's in the hand of your opponent, that's in the hand of someone you'd never, you would never think. And so I, I expect that. I look for that. So when I go to Silicon Valley, when I go to Hollywood, when I go to D.C., when I go to Wall Street, I'm looking for that completely unexpected ally that, for reasons completely invisible until they come sharply into view, is willing to partner with me to do something amazing. And so, um, you know, I've just I've, I've seen that enough times. I just I expect it. And so if you look for it, sometimes you find it. Sometimes by looking for it, you create it. You know, when I first met Newt Gingrich, and I had to keep beating up on Newt because there's a bunch of other, I mean, look, we work with Alicia Keys, we work with, um, you know, people at Twitter and Google, and, you know, so we get a chance to work with all kinds of great people. But Newt is a great example because he's so famous and, and he's so clear about his own views. But when I first met Newt, you know, the first thing I said to him was, I just said, well, Mr. Speaker, I want, want you to know something. I'm the only person in the United States, including your wife, who's read all your books, sir. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I had, you know. And I read them when they came out. I didn't have to, like, go order them on Amazon. Um, because he's my opponent. I respect him enough mm-hmm. to have actually read all of his mm-hmm. stuff. And his, his stuff has actually had a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, his patriotism really challenged my view. I'm like, this guy's got a very long historical view and understanding about what he thinks America is and what it's not. And I don't agree with it. But I can't argue with him because he's done the work and I haven't. Mm-hmm. And so I actually got all this, you know, years before I met him, 15 years before I met him, I ordered all of the tapes from his lectures, uh, Renewing American Civilization. And I said tapes. I didn't say I downloaded the MP3. I didn't say I got the CD. I said I got the tapes. And I used to walk around with a, the old Walkman with the cassette tape listening to Newt Gingrich's lectures on... American civilization and taking notes and trying to figure out how it is that I think I love America, but I disagree with everything he's saying. Mm-hmm. And so my patriotism is formed in a conversation, in a dialogue with him, even though he never met me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of came to the view that for conservatives, the country was founded perfect. The founders were perfect. It was all perfect. And then it's just been this long descent as r- liberals have ruined the perfection of the founders. And for liberals, it's the reverse. You know, the founders, uh, uh, highly imperfect. Um, The founding reality, highly imperfect. Uh, Even Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. What's he talking about? He's talking about the enslavement. They couldn't get the slavery dealt with. I mean, frankly, women couldn't vote. Native Americans were being genocided. You know, all of these things were going on. If you weren't a, a white male landowner, you didn't count at all. The founding reality, highly imperfect and unequal, Mm -hmm. profoundly unequal. But that same Thomas Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal. So the founding dream Mm -hmm. is this beautiful dream about equality. Mm -hmm. The founding reality is an ugly, unequal mess. What's my patriotism? My patriotism says, who Americans are, we're that unique people um, every color, every kind of human ever born in one country trying to close the gap 
between that ugly founding reality and the beauty of the founding dream. So for me, we go from an imperfect founding reaching for perfection. For Newt, we start off with perfection and we fall. And, he's, and, and the conservatives are trying to get us back to, 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 the, to the founders. Uh, but all of that, you know, so when I, come, when I meet him, there's the profound respect of one samurai greeting another and a, and a, a young samurai meeting a master because I, I understand the intellectual achievement which is the foundation of the Gingrich Revolution. Mm -hmm. If you aren't willing to put that much work in, mm -hmm. it's easy to say, well, he's just a meanie. Mm -hmm. He's mean. Mm -hmm. I don't like him. Boo, Newt. Mm -hmm. That's not an adequate basis mm -hmm. to confront these crises. We're in a civilizational crisis. We're moving from one form of human civilization to another one. And what that new one is, is up to us to create, to co-author. And all the divisions of the, of the industrial age um, may or may not even prove relevant. Mm -hmm. When we have robots and AI and, and, and ecological you know, solutions and chaos and you know, who knows what we're going into. And so if you're going to help to author a century, a new century, a new millennium that can work for the sisters and brothers mm -hmm. of all species, you know, the children of all species, the sisters and brothers of all people, if that's what you're trying to do, well, then you can't be too certain about who your friends and enemies are along that, that path. It's a quest. It's a, it's a quest for humanity. And you get us a couple of years to play, just a couple of decades, and then your turn's over. Mm -hmm. So in the time that you've got, uh, I think it's important to, um, uh, to have as big a heart as possible, but also as hard a head. You know, this mm -hmm. is a tough game. Thank you you have demonstrated a practice which is very much what I see as a distinction in those practicing restorative leadership, making choices uh, with the highest benefit to all in mind. And you have done that in particular in 2008 and 2009. In 2008, you left a, a great life here in the Bay Area to answer a national call to service and uprooted your family, new family. And then in 2009, you made the choice to resign from your role as a special advisor to the White House out of concern that uh, an unfounded smear campaign would distract from the passage of health care for all mm -hmm. and that effort. Those are two really big choices. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are many more in your life. Just what, what does it take to make that kind of a decision? Mm -hmm. The most important practice is just to remember um, who you're speaking for. Not even who you're speaking to, mm -hmm. but who you're speaking for. Mm -hmm. um, and to be grounded in that. Mm -hmm. And then um, it makes decisions a little bit easier. They're always, you know, in any, in any heroic... Uh, sheroic epic journey or quest you're, the whole reason it's a quest you're, is you're confronted with dilemma and choice in dilemma where no matter what you do it's a bad choice you know if you if you stay in Oakland and continue building your small green not-for-profit um, you then leave a president who uh, may need help and maybe somebody else takes that job and they do a terrible job at it and then you're at the effect of that if you go to the White House, you're leaving everything that you've built for 10, 15 years. You're all your community, all that you're known. Your not-for-profit may collapse. People who quit their jobs come work for you may lose their jobs. Plus, you may suck at the new job. 
So it's choice and dilemma um, that reveals character. At that time, they couldn't attack President Obama directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just too popular, he was too powerful, so they had to find substitutes. They would go out, they went after Acorn, a, a, a black mm-hmm. grassroots group. They went after me, they went after Shirley Sherrod, another African-American. Well, if you quit, you give them a victory. Mm-hmm. And if you uh, quit, mm-hmm. you also have a huge loss of status and standing mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a society mm-hmm. that hates losers. Um, mm. the, one of the worst things that can happen to you is to run for president and lose. Mm. Uh, you know, some of our greatest people in, in the culture, uh, John McCain, Al Gore, John Kerry, are only seen by lots of people as people who lost. Mm-hmm. So being a loser is something in American culture that people will go to great lengths, including cheating, taking drugs, whatever they have to do, um, to avoid. Mm-hmm. So there's a big cost if you quit a job in the White House. And again, the president never asked me to quit. They never did that. I made my own choice. There's a big cost. But if you stay and you become a banana peel for the first black president mm-hmm. while he's trying to get doctors to babies, uh, how do you justify that? Did you come to the White House for the president to defend you or did you go to try to protect and to serve and to defend the president? That's the fundamental question. I had a job before I got here. I get another job. Mm-hmm. Get me off the stage. Do this work. It's much more difficult the day after. You know, you make this sort of heroic choice and you kind of feel all noble and good about it. And the next day, you know, you're still getting pummeled in the press. And also, all your friends move on because there's there's legislation to pass and there's things to do. And suddenly, your phone used to ring all the time. Now it doesn't ring at all. Mm-hmm. You used to be in a thousand meetings. Now you're sitting home by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't change in a day. It doesn't change in a year. Mm-hmm. And so that long walk, you know, you kind of almost feel like you got, you know, you, you uh, abandoned, you know, on the far side of the of the mountain, and you got to climb it by yourself to get back to your compatriots. Um, but I, I did climb it. Mm-hmm. And I had great help from my wife, from, from close friends. Um, I had to go through a lot of healing because when you go through something like that, it brings up a lot of stuff from your childhood. It brings up a lot of um, suddenly, you know, you, you realize you, 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 you can be very tough when you pick the fight. But when the fight picks you, mm-hmm. you suddenly realize maybe you're not so tough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to go, you know, go break up a bar fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's something else if you get mugged in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. When the fight comes to you, you suddenly see parts of yourself that are weaker and more fragile, that are more anxious, that are more depressive, that are less confident mm-hmm. than you knew were there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, both of those decisions to go and to leave were both hard. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day... You know, if you want to grow, you have to take chances. When you were in the Obama administration, you did a really great exercise with your team. And you asked your team to envision what they would choose as the images of before and after for the results of two terms of the 
Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to put that in the context of your life. And when you envision the before and after images of your life's leadership legacy, mm. what, do you, what do you see? Well, um, you know, you, you hope that some of the work that you've done uh, has a lasting effect, but you never know. Um, so uh, the things that I think are important, I think we need some new stories, new paradigms, just new ways of seeing um, each other. Uh, I think a lot of the what the Western mind tends to do is divide one into two. So, mm. you know, like men and women and um, you know, black and white and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. And then try to figure out which, like, which one is superior versus inferior. Mm -hmm. And then once you figure out the superior one, the superior one is supposed to either conquer or convert the inferior. So that's, that could be human nature, but it seems to be especially pronounced in the West. And I'm trying to figure out how we uh, tell a different story, more of an ecological, holistic, you know. I, in my political work, I work with the, um, with Coke Industries on criminal justice stuff. I, I fight Coke Industries on environmental stuff. Uh, I think that we need to have an ecosystem where, you know, people who are very, very different can find uh, points of harmony, uh, uh, counterpoise, and um, there's not a lot of support for that in the culture. You tell a liberal you're working with Newt Gingrich, they think that you're no longer liberal. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if Newt Gingrich tells a conservative he's working with Van Jones, they think maybe he's no longer conservative. Uh, the idea that we could all be in a garden and different mm -hmm. critters and different plants are doing different work and we actually need each other, mm -hmm. that doesn't have a lot of support yet in the culture. And I think that uh, is tough. Mm -hmm. I think also because we're asking the Western democracies to absorb a lot of change mm -hmm. very quickly, uh, demographically, um, technologically, uh, culturally in terms of male-female, um, even geopolitically with the rise of China, uh, people get scared. Uh, and that's where you get demagoguery and Brexit and Trump and that kind of stuff. But I think people of conscience have to ask ourselves the question, you're mad at the Trump voters, um, but did you ever talk to any of them? Um, you know, you, you've got... Uh, white, male, heterosexual Republicans in the red states, are they a part of your plan? Is making their life better a part of your agenda? Well, if not, you can't be mad at them for then going with somebody who at least is talking to them. So if I can set some examples that you can be as strong and progressive as I am, but still um, not only respect, but re recognize that I actually need uh, conservative white guys to have the world that I want. Um, and they have a place of dignity and honor in the future I'm trying to create. Mm -hmm. If we can strengthen that um, possibility in the, the culture, that'd be a good thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, out of that field, then all kind of cool stuff might happen on clean energy or technology diversity or prison reduction. But for me, all the work that I do through the Dream Corps, those are just the outreach ministries. A church of change at the center of um, what my hopes are for the, the Dream Corps it's just about being open to a lot of possibilities, solution-oriented um, and soulful. Mm, thank you. Thank you for listening and learning with me as I talked with CNN political contributor and Dream Corps president Van Jones. I am Shauna Steffen, and this is On Leading. To help accelerate opportunity for all with Van, 
please go to dreamcore.org. And to discover more about restorative leadership, go to restorative-leadership.org and subscribe to On Leading on iTunes.